0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 125. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on August 6, 2023, in a secure, undisclosed location outside of Tupper Lake, New York. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, or, you know, as little as we can manage. It is the fall. Of 1635. In Boston, the oldest surviving school in today's United States, the Boston Latin School, has been founded the previous spring. The Hutchinson family has arrived in Boston, and Anne Hutchinson is no doubt paying very close attention to the trial of Roger Williams, who would be convicted and sentenced to banishment in early October. That winter, Williams would flee to Narragansett Bay and shelter with the tribes in the region along the way. Also in October 1635, Samuel de Champlain would suffer a severe stroke and die in Quebec on Christmas Day. In Maryland, 18 months have passed since the Ark and the Dove arrived. Leonard Calvert, the brother of the Lord Proprietor Cecil Calvert, and the more than 200 settlers had through the good offices of Henry Fleet, secured a site for their settlement at St. Mary's City, purchased land from the local tribe, built a palisade, and grown enough food that they had surplus to export. All, however, was not rosy. The Marylanders were in a shooting war, albeit a really teeny-weeny one, with Virginians led by Thomas Claiborne, who had established a trading post and plantation on Kent Island, which sits in proprietary territory more than 50 miles north of St. Mary's City, as the robust crow flies. We covered that story in that time Maryland and Virginia went to war back in April 2023, episode 112, as Apple reckons it the Marylanders still needed to set up a functioning government. As of the fall of 1635, Cecil Calvert, back in England, was still the Lord Proprietor with almost royal powers to the full extent of the Bishop of Durham clause. He operated through his brother Leonard, whom Cecil had appointed governor, and Leonard was in turn advised by yet another Calvert, Brother George, Deputy Governor, and Jerome Hawley and Thomas Cornwallis, also Catholics. This was not, dare we say, inclusive, especially insofar as a majority of the settlers were Protestants of one sort or another and naturally unwilling to be simply bossed around by various Calverts. It would take the Calverts and the majority of the freemen three years or so to sort everything out. But by the summer of 1638, Maryland would have a more recognizably representative legislature than either Virginia, which had first convened its House of Burgesses in 1619, or the New Englanders, who had dated their own version of consent of the governed to the Mayflower Compact in 1620 and the Council of the Magistrates of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Notably, none of the other powers in the lands of today's United States, Spain, France, or the Netherlands, would even toy with notions of self-government in the 17th century. Only the English would push for it, and they would do so in different ways and in different places. Article 7 of the Charter of Maryland describes a framework for local government of sorts in pertinent part, quote, We, that would be Charles I, have above made and ordained the aforesaid now baron of Baltimore that we do grant unto the said now baron in whose fidelity, prudence, justice and provident circumspection of mind, we repose the greatest confidence for the good and happy government of the said province, free, full, and absolute power, by the tenor of these presents, to ordain, make, and enact laws of what kind soever, according to their sound discretions, whether relating to the public state of the said province or the private utility of individuals, of and with the advice, assent, and approbation of the freemen of the same province, or the greater part of them, or of their delegates or deputies, whom we will shall be called together for the framing of laws when and as often as need shall require by the aforesaid now baron Baltimore. There was embedded in this sweeping grant a point over which fair-minded people might argue. What was the meaning of the qualification that laws be enacted with the advice, assent, and approbation of the free men? The Calverts naturally argued that only the Baron could propose laws and the advice, assent, blah-blah-blah part was barely necessary in any formal sense, and in any case limited to an up-or-down vote. A significant faction of the freeholders would argue, au contraire, that the legislature, when it was convened, could initiate legislation. As we shall see, within a few years, the freemen would win their point. The advice and consent language, however, would make its way into the United States Constitution— the Senate required to give its advice and consent on presidential appointments and treaties, among other things. It bears mentioning that it would be the Calvert's interpretation of those words that would eventually triumph in our own governance. The Senate needs to consent to presidential appointees, but has no power to nominate them. At any rate, in 1635, the Maryland settlers met in General Assembly. Each freeman at this point, with one vote, which could be delegated or given by a proxy. We do not know precisely what happened because of the subsequent destruction of the earliest records of the colony, but we do know that legislation was proposed to supersede the code prepared by Lord Baltimore for the period before the assembly could be assembled. It does not mean that Cecil Calvert, the Lord proprietor still back in England, opposed the legislation on the substance but he objected to the initiation of it by the settlers. The first session of the General Assembly for which records survive, sat at St. Mary's City from January 25th to March 24th, 1638. Had the settlers tied themselves up for two months squabbling, that would have been a bad sign. But in fact, the session was punctuated with frequent recesses so that the people could get their actual work done. Attendance in person, by delegate or by proxy, was compulsory for all freemen. The only such people who did not vote were the clergy, the Jesuit Fathers White, Altham, and Copley. The clergy were ultimately explicitly barred from membership, a rather stark departure from the practice of New England. This was, no doubt, a concession to the Protestant majority, which was disinclined to absolute rule by the Catholic gentleman who did Baron Baltimore's bidding in the colony. Now let's go to Matthew Page Andrews, author of the 90-year-old book The Founding of Maryland, for the process followed by the Assembly, one of our earliest examples from the early American Republic. It should be said that this episode will have a lot from Andrews, because his book has factually comprehensive and saves us from spending weeks reading the archives of Maryland, but handle with care. Andrews was writing in celebration of the 300th anniversary of Maryland's founding, and, we will see again, he doesn't write much that reflects poorly on Maryland's founders. Now, quote, Regulations for the orderly conduct of the Assembly are of unusual interest. It was agreed that the Lieutenant General... Leonard Calvert, was to direct all things that concern form and decency, with a power to command the observance thereof as he shall see cause, upon pain of imprisonment or fine as the house shall adjudge. The members sat with their hats on, but everyone who rose to speak was to be uncovered and direct his speech to the lieutenant general as president of the assembly. It was provided that No one shall refute the speech of any other with any uncivil or contentious terms, nor shall name him but by some circumlocution. This is akin, by the way, to intoning with the greatest respect to the Right Honorable Senator from Texas just before skewering him. Again, following the custom of the British, sick, Parliament, it was ordered that the House shall sit every day at eight of the clock in the morning and at two of the clock in the afternoon. Finally, it was decreed that freemen assembled at any time to any number above ten persons should constitute a quorum for the transaction of business, a surprisingly small proportion of the whole, considering the number of those qualified to sit as members of the Assembly. Back to me. Regarding this last, the population of Maryland colony had risen to about 700 by 1638, but I could not find the number of enfranchised freemen. must have been reasonably large, though, for such a gathering. Much of the first session was given over to the aforementioned dispute over the initiation of legislation during the course of and after the first session. Lord Baltimore, presumably consulted via long-deferred correspondence, revised some of the laws proposed by the Assembly by making them more favorable to the settlers while preserving the fiction that he had initiated them. The English of that time being highly concerned with legal prerogatives, as they had been in Parliament in the 1620s in both Virginia and Massachusetts since their founding, the settlers, supported by one of the commissioners, Thomas Cornwallis, would not budge on the point of principle, voting down a resolution that the laws proposed by Lord Baltimore be received, 37 to 14. Lord Baltimore would ultimately break the deadlock by conceding the point in August 1638. Baltimore, of course, could have forced the issue. He had the unqualified backing of Charles I, but the practical consideration was the same as it had been in New England and Virginia, The vast expanse of the Atlantic elevated the practical considerations of local politics over the technical application of the law. In this, Baltimore was engaging in an early form of the salutary neglect that would define English and then British governance of their colonies in North America until the middle of the 18th century. We'll skip over the ins and outs and what have yous, but the assembly of 1638 agreed to a different organization that would, in principle, make it easier to legislate in the future. Back to Andrews, quote, This was the last assembly that authorized the attendance of all the freemen of the province. Together with a grant received from the Lord Proprietor of the right to initiate legislation came directions for the creation of an elective assembly in which the representatives of the people were called Burgesses, after the custom previously established in Virginia. These Burgesses were elected, like the Virginians, from political divisions called hundreds. Precedents for safeguarding the freedom of the assemblymen in session by granting them immunity from arrest were greatly broadened when the motion was passed that even those freemen who had given their proxies to others were not to be subjected to detention or confinement until a convenient space of time after the dissolution of the said assembly for their repair home. This legislative exemption probably meant just what it meant in England, another product of the tumultuous struggle between Parliament and the Stuart Kings in the 1620s. Thank you, Edward Coke, But no privilege of the members of Parliament was allowed to exempt them from arrest in matters of criminal offense. The Virginia House of Burgesses at its third session in 1624, had passed a probable prototype to the Maryland Act, which read that no Burgess of the General Assembly should be arrested during the sitting of the Assembly, and a week before and a week after, upon pain of the creditors forfeiting his debt, and such punishment upon the officer as the court should award. Back to me. The reference in the Virginia statute to creditors may seem strange to modern ears, but in the 17th century, debtors who defaulted were subject to arrest as criminals. It would be the better part of a century before the English would realize that tossing a debtor in prison would actually make it more difficult to collect on a debt-in-default. Also, these laws from the earliest moments in Virginia and Maryland not only derive from the English parliamentary struggle in the 1620s, they would make it into the U.S. Constitution— In Article 1, Section 6, which provides, among other things, quote, "...the senators and representatives shall in all cases, except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, and in going to and returning from the same, and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place." The first assemblies, extending into the early 1640s, passed a fair amount of useful legislation, much of which gives us a glimpse into the concerns that preoccupied them. They established an all-important water mill for the grinding of the settlers' grain and appropriated funds up to 20,000 pounds of tobacco for its construction to be raised by taxation within two years. Now back to Andrews for more, quote... The founders of Maryland made no effort to stop the importation or manufacture of intoxicating liquors. Drunkenness, however, was made punishable by fines or whippings for every such excess at the discretion of the judge. The fine was set at 30 pounds of tobacco, or 5 shillings. The offense was specifically defined as drinking with excess to the notable perturbation of any organ of sense or motion. In this connection, it may be noted that in a clause attached to a law concerning insolvency, the following declaration is found that debts for wine and hot waters be not satisfied till all other debts be paid. The expression, hot waters, was much used by the Indians in reference to rum, brandy, and whiskey. Three years later, the Assembly passed a more strenuous regulation as follows. Everyone convicted of being drunk, to be determined by the judge, by and before any sworn judge, shall forfeit a hundred pounds of tobacco toward the building of a prison or such other public use as the Lord proprietary or his lieutenant general shall think fit or if the offender be a servant, and have not wherewith to satisfy the fine, he shall be imprisoned or set in the stocks, or bilboes, fasting for twenty-four hours, this act to endure till the end of the next assembly. Back to me. Presumably the law was strengthened because the original penalty was not sufficient to deter the notable perturbation of any organ of sense or motion— Note also this early use of essentially a tax on vice to fund government, a popular application of state power in the United States down to this very day. The Assembly also passed a statute regulating the treatment of indentured servants. Back to Andrews, quote, Masters were required to supply these dependents with necessary or convenient food, lodging, clothing, etc., The penalty for infraction of this particular act, it should be noted, was not a fine, but imprisonment. On the other hand, the Assembly passed a law regulating the conduct of these servants, to the end that they should all live up to their agreement of service. The penalty for failure to perform the lawful commands of their masters, or for testifying falsely against them, was public whipping, or other punishment at the discretion of the court. From time to time, persons were brought to trial for the abuse of indentured servants, as in the case of Joseph Fincher, whose harshness appears to have resulted in the death of Jeffrey Hagman, for which after a jury trial, Fincher was condemned to be hanged. On the other hand, there's an abundance of evidence to show that the servants received good treatment and were far better off than if they had remained in England. George Alsop, servant for a four-years period, wrote shortly after his arrival in Maryland, had I known my yoke would have been so easy, I would have been here long before now. Back to me, as charitable as Marylanders may have been in that harsh world. As in Virginia, they would not extend the same rights to enslaved Africans, who had probably already arrived by the Assembly of 1639, of which more in a few moments. Now back to Andrews for his enumeration of felonies, quote. It was made a felony to shed the blood of any judge sitting in the court. Thereupon followed the customary lists of felonies, burglary, robbery, assault, etc., to which were added special offenses, such as giving or selling arms to Indians and teaching them the use of same. The penalties laid down for these offenses were hanging and forfeiture of estate, saving to the wife or widow her dower, and to the heir his or her inheritance, etc. The list of felonies ran all the way from willfully firing a stack of corn or tobacco to assaulting and beating the lieutenant general of the province, or a judge, a witness, or a juror, in presence of court. The cutting out of another's tongue was deemed worthy of mention as particularly reprehensible, and all like mischiefs. Not sure what a like mischief to cutting out someone's tongue would be. The hiding of a felon was in itself a felony, but exception was made in the case of a felon's wife, an early discrimination in favor of women, according to Andrews, in view of the fact that no provision was made to excuse a husband in the event he hit his wife, found guilty of a like offense. Stealth of one's self, is included among these felonies, meaning the unlawful departure of an indentured servant out of service or out of the colony without the consent of the master or mistress. But the last named felonies were different in that a certain premium was put upon education in the case of the offender. The final section of the law reads, And the offender in these felonies, or any of them, shall suffer pains of death by hanging, except the offender can read clerk-like in the judgment of the court, and then the offender shall lose his hand or be burned in the hand or forehead with a hot iron and shall forfeit all his or her lands at the time of the offense committed, saving to the wife or widow her dower. The customary old-world penalties were severe enough, as prescribed, but as in the case of the Act Concerning Treason, provincial judges and juries soon found a way to lighten the punishment, particularly as every life counted in an uncultivated and undeveloped country, so that the laws and customs of England transferred to America soon lost their inflexibility and became either dead letters or remodified. Back to me. The more lenient penalties for the literate might be construed as favoring elites, as they no doubt did on a population basis. In fact, however, they were very broad— We don't have literary estimates for early Maryland, but the adult male literacy rate in nearby Virginia in 1650 has been estimated at 54%. So the privilege, you can't see my scare quotes, of lighter sentences probably extended to a large part of the population. The better interpretation is the same that Andrews gives for the lighter sentences handed out in practice. Capable people were very important in early colonial America and executing them willy-nilly would have been very costly to the prosperity of the settlement. Back to Andrews, quote, In a list of enormous offenses were enumerated such crimes and misdemeanors as perjury, forgery, contempt of court, bribery, the use of false weights and measures, extortion, oppression, and so forth. In this category were included the spreading of false reports and conspiracy— the latter being defined as the unlawful combination of two or more persons against another's life, fame, or goods. Finally, a special clause indicates that the freemen of the province, as well as the proprietary, were disposed to be fair and just in their dealings with the natives, since it was decreed that all injuries done to an Indian in person or goods should be accounted among these felonies. By way of illustration, court proceedings for 1658 records a special warrant to the sheriff of St. Mary's County to warn Vincent Acheson to appear personally at the next provincial court to answer the complaint of an Indian the said Vincent having abused him and robbed him. Back to me. Among many possible reasons for protecting the Indians under colonial law, one must be the continuing shadow of a ambush of 1622. Just as the lesson of that catastrophe echoed in New England in the paranoia that led to the Pequot War, of which the Marylanders would have been much aware, the early assembly, no doubt, wanted to prevent crimes that would ignite a war on the Northern Chesapeake. They would not be entirely successful. I took you through all that legislation and whatnot for the usual reason. I found it interesting. There was, however, more than Andrews shared. George Bancroft, writing in the middle of the 19th century, notes that in 1639 the assembly confirmed to the residents of the colony all the liberties which an Englishman enjoyed at home by virtue of the common or statute law, a point Andrews makes as well, but specifically carves out, quote, slaves, a handy bit of information Andrews omits. Bancroft observes that, quote, the exception of slaves implies that Negro slavery had already intruded itself into the province. In fact, it was the Maryland Assembly that produced the first legislation to mention slaves and slavery in English colonial America. Enslaved Africans and people of African descent had, of course, long lived in Spanish territory in today's United States and were governed by laws, But none of those were written or imposed by a legislature, because the Spanish didn't have those. Proto-democracy isn't always pretty, folks. And digging around a bit, there is, in fact, a lot of scholarship on the early Black slavery in the Palatinate of Maryland going back more than 60 years. I did not spend more than a few hours with it, so all the usual caveats apply. I did find one piece, however, by Jonathan Alpert, The Origin of Slavery in the United States, The Maryland Precedent, published in the American Journal of Legal History in July 1970. It's written in the style of a law review article. Alpert went on to practice law rather than history. So it gives a nice recitation of the chronology of the earliest legal evidence of slavery in Maryland. We'll close this episode by hitting some of the highlights, which are actually lowlights. Alpert's first important point is that slavery, meaning at least lifetime servitude in which the servant had no choice, as opposed to contracted servitude in which the servant had at least a notional choice, in the American colonies and then in the United States, was enabled by new law. There had been no provision for it in English common law, and there had been precedent against it in the king's courts as early as 1346. That did not mean there were no slaves in England in the early 1600s. From the little I have read on the topic, there were a handful, including some Native Americans. There, of course, weren't police checking up on such relationships and freeing enslaved people as they came across them. But if a servant alleged that he or she was held in servitude beyond the extent of a contract, he or she would stand a good chance of winning in court. The momentous question, is how it was that slavery came to be recognized in American law, even when it was not in the English common law, which was critical precedent in the colonies. That is a topic for another podcast, or perhaps a series of them. But that will come only when I believe I know enough on the topic to avoid getting cut to shreds by the many people with strong feelings about it one way or the other. For our small purposes today, it's enough to say that Maryland was the first jurisdiction in English North America to recognize slavery as a matter of law. The critical year was 1639, in that the Maryland Assembly confirmed the rights of Englishmen to all Christian inhabitants, slaves specifically accepted, as George Bancroft pointed out in the 1870s, That same year, the Assembly passed an Act Limiting the Time of Servants, some of the provisions of which we discussed a few minutes ago. Although Andrews doesn't say it, that Act also specifically excluded slaves, using the term. It's not perfectly clear, however, who were accounted to be slaves in Maryland in 1639. Alpert argues that the term probably meant a person who was obligated to serve his master for life rather than a term of years established by a contract or testimony supplied by witnesses. Alpert says it was not clear whether there was a hereditary component in Maryland in 1639. Perhaps more recent scholarship has established that there was, but I've not run across it in my quick search. Nevertheless, the legal recognition of slavery continues in the fairly robust Maryland documentary record. Now let's go to Albert for an example. Quote Negroes were first mentioned judicially in an executory land contract recorded in 1642. Quote, the said John Skinner covenanted and bargained to deliver unto the said Leonard Calvert fourteen Negro men slaves and three women slaves. Close quote. The seventeen slaves, however, may never have been delivered. But the use of the term slaves is still significant. Not mere term servants were being purchased. Rather, the delivery of slaves, at least servants for life, was the promise which Skinner made. In 1644, mention is made of two Negroes who had been sold. It's not stated whether or not these two Negroes were slaves because Unlike an executory contract in which it is necessary to clearly articulate the promises of the parties, there was no need for designation of the Negro's status in reference to a past sale. Although there may have been a few Negro slaves in the colony as early as 1635 to 1640, there were also indentured Negro servants during this period. Back to me. Alpert goes on to show that there were many court cases in Maryland during the 17th century over the condition and status of indentured servants and slaves. They were not invariably decided in favor of the master. Each seemed to turn on the evidence at hand, and according to Alpert, it was not obvious that the judges and juries deciding such cases were automatically racist in their application of the law. That would not come until later in the century, when Maryland would pass statutes clarifying that lifetime servitude was a function of race. That did not mean that there weren't free blacks, but it also meant that by the 1670s, blacks were assumed to be enslaved servants for life in the absence of evidence to the contrary, such as documented manumission. Since this topic is already too long to take up the other big topics in early Maryland, the relations with the tribes, and Maryland's unique approach to religious toleration within Christianity. We'll wrap it up here. Thank you, as always, for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Helps with the algos. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website and follow me on egadsx, that would be Twitter, to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly, but not only, history-related topics. Until next time.